Hello, family. This is Larry Hogan, your host for the podcast. Where do we go from here? The question has been asked. The answer is forward, always forward. In our last episode about the results of the 2020 election, I talked about the depth and impact of cultural icons who I believe left an indelible mark on our country and is representative of the different factions in and of today's society. Their legacy, talents, and accomplishments provide a backdrop against obstacles many encounter in their pursuit to achieve goals. Now, some may question the importance of their successes, and some may disagree, but not the influence nor their authenticity. For a recap, let me connect the dots. Icon number one was RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. To me, she symbolizes the stark differences of our political parties. One side speaks and aggressively goes after what they believe in, truth be damned. The other side feigns disdain and disbelief about hypocrisy. But then when push comes to shove, one side is quick to compromise in the name of governing. Whether that is right or wrong is irrelevant. Is irrelevant. The question, how hard are you willing to fight for what you believe in? One side will toe the party line with proclamations of their sincerity in their beliefs as long as it gets desired results. Does the ends justify the means and how far are you willing to go? Now, after an election, each party typically recaps the results while seeking ways to improve the outcome, regardless of victory or defeat. It seems this time though, we are witnessing perhaps the most blatant attempt not to improve the product, but to silence your opponents and deny them opportunities and access to vote. Icon number two, Kobe. To me, he represents the great redeeming quality of people in spite of life's circumstances. Kobe who early on seemingly had all the fruits of his labor on public display. A beautiful wife, family, riches from his hard work. He came from a good upper middle income background with mother and father intact. Then when things went south and a dark chapter in this fairy tale was revealed, after some give and take and never really admitting to the crime, in some eyes blaming others, he went back to work. He put in the time and eventually, ultimately, I believe he was forgiven and accepted, for the most part, back into society's good graces. And when his life was tragically cut short, most remember the good and how he died as a father supporting his family. The Republican Party always when it is convenient, it's quick to remind America that we are the party of Lincoln. We are the party that freed the slaves. It was the Democratic Party who enforced slavery in America. And a and hundred years later, included in that Democratic Party was George Wallace. He, of the segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever fame, as he stood and blocked progress 
at the University of Alabama to prevent integration in the school. If not for the fervor and determination of Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, and young lions such as John Lewis, who, with the organizing, planning, and commitment of the black church, forced a reluctant Democratic Party to enact laws and do the hard work to make a lasting change and legacy. To that extent, and because of their fierce determination, the Dixocrat Party was born. And so too was the creation of the Southern Strategy. Finally, in my, synop- in my synopsis, icon number three, I choose Chadwick Boseman. He represents the American people. That's the majority who the public service, AKA elected officials are supposed to represent. These are the faceless many who take on all the challenges that befell them, placing no blame, regardless of circumstances, even though some may have had better opportunities. Some may have more and easier access, but they do not complain. They just keep putting in the work and never, ever yield it. Chadwick Bozeman never complained out loud about his circumstances. He died of cancer. I am certain he had the resources and access to the best medical care available, and yet faith dealt him a cruel blow. He took advantage of ever every opportunity given and made the most out of it with never ever complaining. Now this time around, I wanna talk about the politics of our elected leaders on behalf of the American people. And who are the American people? Who are these people that both parties keep talking about? There's no doubt they are in America, but exactly who are these leaders representing? If you listen to the various sources from newscasts to cable shows, using social media, you would swear we are living in two different worlds. One side, the argument is still being made about the legitimacy of the election, while at the same time, both sides claimed this was the most secure election ever. Based on three national combination of three national polls, here are the latest results for the end of February. Biden's approval rating was 59% versus a 35% disapproval rate. Congressional approval of job performance was at 35%. Breaking it down, the Democrats raised their approval by 19 points. The Republicans remained unchanged at 17 points. And independents raised their, uh, their approval ratings to 25 points. As of week ending March 12th, here are some more raw numbers. There were 14 key positions ranging from the economy to education to national security. And based on that, there's one party that holds the advantage of having the trust of the American people. The 14 key positions, economy, jobs, healthcare, immigration, climate change, environment, energy, education, guns, Medicare and social security, coronavirus, voting rights, national security, 
and background check on guns. The Dems have a decided advantage in all of these categories by an average of 17 points. The closest Republicans hold is a two-point edge in national security. The beauty of the Republican Party, and I'm not sure if that's the right word to use, but the beauty, it seems, is that uh, they are focused on winning and have a particularly unique relationship with their base of supporters. They are not punished for hypocrisy, as it appears there is a suspension from reality, integrity, and truthfulness. There still is a majority of that base who accept that the election was rigged and Joe Biden is not the legitimate winner. I don't know how to debate with anyone who has no floor of reality. If the courts are to be the arbitrators of truthfulness, be they local, state, or federal, and they did not find reason to change the results, I don't know how to respond if facts are not observed. If QAnon has not produced any substantial evidence of any of their predictions and or forecasts, if attacking the very institutions that are the cornerstone of democracy and what makes America the envy of the world, the standard bearer, and yet I am at a loss for words and cannot explain it. I still am surprised that a personality such as former President Donald Trump can garner elected officials who have been in office for decades and would allow this to happen and they would not tell the truth. Maybe with our love, that's the people, with our love for celebrities and how we fawn over the rich and famous, surely with the world watching and waiting, after all the talk about the Constitution, surely though, America would not have a modern day insurrection led by the President of the United States. Surely not the party of Lincoln, the party of fiscal responsibility, law and order, personal accountability would idly stand by and let this happen. And even after cowering in the bowels of the Capitol, hiding in fear, some would still come out and support a lie. You do this on behalf of the American people? Even now, there are still large numbers of supporters who think America should move on from the insurrection at the Capitol and just forget about it. Ah, but policy matters. Now, I'm speaking about the policy of the past five or six years specifically, but in order to understand that, you have to go back uh, the last couple of generations. And by that, I'm talking about at least 40 to 50 years. To set this up, based on the rhetoric today, which party and administration would I be describing? The military budget was decreased despite an ongoing war. His policies include ending the military draft 
and his economic policies were not particularly friendly to business nor the rich. His administration supported and signed a bill that abolished investment tax credits for businesses and, again, the rich. He increased capital gains tax and cut off loopholes by introducing a minimum tax. This administration created the Environmental Protection Agency and for Consumer Product and Safety Commission, this administration created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. This president signed the Equal Employment Opportunity Act that helped root out racial and gender discrimination. His administration quadrupled its staff, increased enforcement power, tripled the budget for civil rights enforcement, and instituted the first affirmative action policies throughout the government to hire more non-white workers. This administration and this president would be Richard Milhouse Nixon, the 37th president of the United States. Nixon also significantly enlarged the welfare state. He made cost of living increases in Social Security automatic. He expanded the food stamp program. Overall, during his five and a half years in office, federal spending on social services doubled. And and now for the kicker, he actually proposed a universal health insurance plan, what this party now calls socialism. One more nail in the coffin. He proposed, with a majority of Republican senators' uh, approval, UBI, Universal Basic Income, and he proposed federally funding child care centers nationwide, available to every family and free for poor and lower middle class families. Now all of that didn't happen and he ended up vetoing it at the urging of some of his young aides, among them a right winger named Pat Buchanan. But many of Nixon's policies prevailed. He adapted to the mood of the country and he was consistent. There was a mix of business morals and care as part of the price of admission into the American way of life. Now again, I must emphasize how liberal Nixon was. He expanded on policies that were working at the time. He did not come in like a bull in a china shop once he took over. He was not a smooth talker, but he was a remarkably crafty politician. Ah, but a change is coming. At the same time, as I was marveling over the, the, the discoveries of the Nixon administration, there was plotting behind the scenes at that same time in the early 70s. As a result, cultural wars were beginning to be created as the far right had been quietly stewing for about five years. It seemed as if the liberals were enjoying the advantage of having the American people on their side, as well as some CEOs 
of major companies. There appeared to be a concentrated effort to ensure corporate profits were reasonable, the pay of CEOs was reasonable, and the treatment of its employees was fair. This was a reflection of corporate values and integrity without much pushback from the administration, at least publicly. It was important for this at this particular time for the corporate America to reflect and the condition to to uh, reflect on the conditions of the environment. To further put some meat on the bone in this discussion and to show how embedded corporations were looking out for the welfare of the public, in the late 60s, CEO Henry Ford, based on articles and public sentiment led by one Ralph Nader about the environment, was asking the government for help in developing a virtually emission-free car and to do it soon. But just as suddenly, a change of heart would come weeks later. A manifesto was being created to give cover to business owners and corporate leaders. That manifesto included that their only obligation is profits and they have no responsibilities to society whatsoever. As an example, uh, in a Harvard Business School class, the answer from a young student named Jeff Skeely, when asked a hypothetical question involving a CEO's obligation to society, if he discovered his product could kill customers. His reply was he would keep making and selling the product. My job as a businessman and leader is to make a profit and maximize return to shareholders. It's the government's job to step in if the product is dangerous. If the name Jeffrey Skeelin sounds familiar to some, he was the CEO of Enron, the energy company based in Houston. It was under his leadership they were found guilty of accounting and corporate financial fraud that destroyed the company to the tune of $74 billion in lost revenue for shareholders and pension benefits for employees. And for his part in that crime, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Hello, America. My name is Lewis Powell. I am the former president of the American Bar Association, and it is my belief that the American businessman has gotten soft and is on the verge of destroying capitalism and by association, freedom and democracy. One of my largest clients is Philip Morris, the largest cigarette company and one of the mainstays of the tobacco industry. I am pissed at the government because it seemed they labeled my product a carcinogen and thereby a danger to society. And on top of that, my product has been banned from commercials and advertisements on television. 
Now, of course, this is creative licenses for me, yours truly, but the sentiments are accurate and true. Mr. Powell was upset about the revolutionaries that were destroying the fabric of American life. And who were these revolutionaries? Those radicals, black and white, who dared to fight for equality. Now remember, this was the time of the Civil Rights Movement. Mr. Powell aptly named them as radicals. He warned that this revolution could engulf this country because the U.S. political economy was under broad attack. He put his thoughts to a speech in a 1970 memo and with these ending words. The media and intellectual communities of our society have built up these extremists into national figures of prominence, power, and even adulation and made them lionize on the campus, in the theater and arts, in the national magazines and on television. More and more Americans, often from our finest homes, are vulnerable to this radical mind-blowing and now believe the destructive criticism that our free enterprise system is rotten and that somehow we have become a wholly selfish, materialistic, racist, and repressive society. The seed had been planted, and war had been declared, if not but an essential war, a substantial war. Businesses against the weak liberals and the policy of caring. This would later become known as the Powell Doctrine, and shortly after its publication, Mr. Powell was rewarded with an appointment on the Supreme Court. This started the literal war and the doctrine said to the troops, this is a long road and not one for the faint-hearted. His was a four-pronged attack on academics, media, politics, and the legal system. Since this was from the business world, money was no problem. For the first two fronts, they needed to find and fund scholars and other intellectuals who think and believe as they do. They would do the writing, thinking, analysis, and speaking, what we now refer to as messaging to gradually change public opinion. Then political power was to be used aggressively without embarrassment and reluctance. The goal was to copy the liberals, but in the opposite direction, meaning form labor unions, civil rights groups, and public interest law firms from a capitalistic point of view. In their opinion, the judiciary may be and will be the most important instrument for social, economic, and political change if the business world is willing to provide the funds. In my next episode, I want to talk about the the Reagan Revolution. This is the podcast. Where do we go from here? I am your host, Larry Hogan. Thank you 
for listening.